Psalm 74, give you to the word of God. It says, a masculine of Asaph. And the psalmist writes, O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Uh, Direct your steps uh, to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. Uh, They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees. Uh, And all, uh, sorry, and all is carved wood. They have broken down with hatchets and hammers. Uh, They set your sanctuary on fire. They They profane the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet. And there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, uh, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Yet God, my king, is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters in the wa- on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food. Sorry for the feedback. For the creatures of the wilderness, you split open the springs and broke and brooks. You dried up the ever-flowing streams. Uh, yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beast. Do not forget uh, the life of your, of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, Psalm 74, uh, you may or may not know, is the second psalm uh, in what is often referred to as Book 3 of the Psalter. If you, uh, some of your Bibles actually will have above seven verse, uh, excuse me, Psalm 73. You might see a subheading or a title saying Book 3, Roman numeral 3 or something like that. There are four books of psalms in the Psalter. They are organized in such a way uh, as that. And... Uh, the, the third book of the Psalms there in the Psalter is made up of Psalm 73 through Psalm 89. And so, you know, we don't always, um, it's not always obvious to us that there is a structure to the Psalms, but there is. Uh, it's not always apparent what, you know, what, what that structure is, is doing, but there is in many places, in many ways, an actual structure to them. Uh, in the, the, the Psalms in this third book, that there's a common theme in them. It's not a very encouraging theme, but the theme there is destruction 
and devastation in the land, uh, especially the temple. Psalm 73 through 89, one of the main themes you'll see woven throughout, and we'll see it in this psalm, is the destruction of the temple uh, there in the land. O. Palmer Robertson writes this. He says, uh, two psalms introduce the focus of the book uh, on the distress and devastation of God's people. Uh, one, viewing the problem from an individual's perspective. That's Psalm 73. We looked at that last time, last uh, communion Sunday. And one, from a corporate perspective, which is Psalm 74. And so that, that's what's going on in the psalm. It begins with two psalms showing uh, devastation uh, among the people. One of them is written... Uh, and kind of it's written from the perspective of just the psalmist himself, which is Psalm 73. You know, why, why do the, the evil, why do the wicked prosper? And Psalm 74 is, is written from a more, more uh, corporate perspective as the people of God dealing with the loss of the temple. We looked at Psalm 73 on the first Sunday of this past month. And you might remember there was a crisis of faith for that individual believer that we can often identify with. And what was that? Um, he... He was vexed, he was troubled, he couldn't figure out how to understand how God could allow it to be that the wicked would prosper and that God's people would suffer affliction. It didn't seem, it didn't seem right, and it still doesn't always seem right to us. And uh, in his book, Learning to Love the Psalms, Dr. Godfrey, Robert Godfrey writes this. He says, the personal crisis of faith of the psalmist in Psalm 73 was resolved for him when he entered the temple. But the crisis of faith in Psalm 74, which is our text, is a crisis for the whole nation because the enemies of God's people have destroyed the temple. Remember in Psalm 73, uh, remember what he said was it, was, it was difficult for him to understand these things until he went into the sanctuary of God and then he perceived their end, the end of the wicked. That's what made it all right. He realized, okay, this is the way it is right now. This is the way it looks right now. But God's going to make all this right. Well, now in Psalm 74, in the very next psalm, there's no sanctuary. The temple has been torn down uh, by the Babylonians. And so that, that comfort, that, that rearranging of his perspective is not even there for him uh, to have. Psalm 74 is a psalm for amid the ruins. The ruins of Jerusalem, the ruins of the temple. Now, we don't know for sure what the historical context was, although we think that's what it was, uh, because there's no, you know, many of the psalms have a superscription, a title that tells you this psalm was written, you know, because of this or this circumstance. This one doesn't say that uh, at all. But the occasion for the writing of Psalm 74 does seem, by the text of the psalm itself, to be in some way largely related to the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians in 586 BC. Now, if you can imagine what that must have been like, you know, we—it's hard for us to fathom what this would have been like, not just the physical destruction of it, but what it meant. You know, we—we we are not shock here, shocking here. We are not the nation of Israel. Uh, the United States of America, in many ways, in our past, has been a land blessed by God, a land where God's uh, name has been revered, where the gospel has gone out with great power, where God—God God has done marvelous things and very kind and merciful to us um, but our nation per se was not quote unquote a holy nation in some ways it was but it's not the same kind of thing where the nation and her religion were basically merged 
that the politics and the religion of the land in Israel were kind of one and the same hand and glove. And so when Jerusalem was destroyed, it wasn't just the capital. It's the place where the house of God was. And the house of God being destroyed, everything is lost. That, that is what they were, were going through with the destruction uh, of the temple. And so this was not just some national crisis. Now, we have those. You think of 9-11, Pearl Harbor, other things. And you, if you were around, if you were an adult when those things happened, you remember probably where you were when you heard about them. You still remember it just like it was yesterday. Uh, we often turn to God in, in prayer and repentance over those things for his mercy. Uh, well, this was not just a national disaster. This was a crisis of faith as well for the entire nation, especially for the faithful Israelites that were left uh, there because the temple had been destroyed. God's house had been ruined and torn, torn down. Um, and in fact, it, what makes it worse, if you look at verse 1, how does the psalmist describe this, this tragedy, this crisis? He describes it as being cast off forever by God. What does he say there, verse 1? Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? You know, there was almost, you know, certainly smoke, literal smoke, uh, there when they burned the temple and burned the synagogues, according to this psalm. So he saw real smoke, but who did he attribute ultimately that smoke to? Not just the Babylonians. He didn't say, well, you know, God let this slip. The Babylonians came in and, you know, God forgot to protect us. He saw it, rightly so, in many ways as a judgment or chastisement of God. He saw it as God's anger smoking against the sheep of his pasture. That's a, a, an awful thing, an awful picture to, to think of. So what's he saying? He's saying this, this tragedy was no accident. It didn't just happen to happen. In fact, there's no such thing as an accident. If you understand and believe in God's providence, God's sovereignty, there's nothing, there's no such thing as a coincidence. There's no such thing as as an accident. In other words, the psalmist rightly saw God's hand in all these things. And he saw God's purposes in all these things. It doesn't mean that he knew you know, the depth of all God was going to do through it. He didn't, you know, none of us can pull that curtain back and mind read God's providence, but he saw God's hand in it. He saw God's providential purposes in it as well. He saw this as an outpouring of God's just judgment on the land. You know, the Bible talks about consider the goodness and severity of God. Well, this is the severity of God, even towards his own people for their idolatry and iniquity in the land. You know, this, there's a reason this happened. And, and much of the reason why this, why this happened was idolatry and iniquity in the land of Judah. You know, and, and so you know, we, we read this morning the Ten Commandments, and I, I made some mention of the first four commandments, how they are dealing with uh, worship and with love for God. I have to say, I, I think it, it, it seems to me that we often, uh, Christians in our country, we often take idolatry very lightly. We, we take God's worship kind of frivolously. We, we, we do what we want to do. We do what we like. We don't take much thought to what pleases or displeases God. And yet, how, how seriously does God take his worship? You know, when you read, and I encourage you to do this, and I'm sure you often have, you know, read through the prophets 
I know some of the books in the Old Testament, the prophetic books, can be kind of intimidating. That's been the case for me at times in my life. You know, you, you feel like you need the, the decoder ring to figure out certain parts of it, and so you think, oh, I'm never going to understand this book. Why? You know, I can't read Ezekiel or Jeremiah with understanding. There's a lot in those prophetic books uh, that you can understand just fine. And much of it involves God's chastisement upon his people, uh, especially even in the major prophets, the Babylonian uh, captivity, the, the, the destruction of Jerusalem uh, and of the northern kingdom as well by the Assyrians. Like God warned them, foretold them what was going to happen if they didn't repent. And sadly, what we know happened, they didn't repent. And what happened? Those, those destructions came from the enemies of God's people, um, you know, remember the book of Jonah? We've talked about that recently. The book of Jonah, remember God tells, tells uh, Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach against that great city? Well, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Assyria was the wicked nation, powerful nation that came and took the northern kingdom of Israel cap into captivity and, and destroyed much of the, of the land in the northern kingdom, those tribes. Well, you know, why did he do that? Because of idolatry. You know, many, many of the judgments you read of in the prophets, it's explicit in the prophets. They committed idolatry. They would not repent of it. They also at times, and I, the book of Isaiah talks about God saying he can't bear iniquity and solemn assembly. So iniquity, in other words, they were doing the right things outwardly. They weren't committing idolatry in that fashion, but they were trying to commit iniquity and mix those two things together as if the one made the other okay. Well, God, it wasn't okay. So God brought judgment in both, those, in both those cases. Now, what form did this chastisement take? Ultimately, it was the destruction, verse 3 tells us, the destruction of the sanctuary. The, the holy place was destroyed. It says in verse 7, even bringing it down to the ground. They tore the temple down to the ground. Not only that, but the enemies of God and his people had, it says in verse 8, burned all the meeting places of God in the land. Now, meeting places, if you have a King James, I think it puts it as synagogue. That's the actual word. It's synagogues. A synagogue is the Hebrew word for a meeting place. So they had burned, the enemies didn't just burn the temple down. It seems, it seems as if they went through all the land, found where the, the Old Testament church, so to speak, was meeting, and burned those down too. It's adding insult to injury. You're, you're going to have no place to worship your God. That's what God's enemies did to the people. The temple of God had been desecrated and destroyed, and the public worship of God had all but been extinguished throughout the southern kingdom of Judah. That's, that's what's happening here. Of all the destruction that had gone on in Judah by the Babylonians, that was surely the worst part. The public worship of God had all been all but been done away with because of the destruction they had wrecked there. And so the psalmist in verse 10 cries out, as the psalms often do, How long, O God? How long is this going to go on? How long do we have to bear this? Why, why was God chastising his people so severely and allowing his enemies to rage against them seemingly with impunity? That that feel familiar at all to anybody these days in our land? It it sure seems like it's getting more and more in that kind of a of a way. And so the psalmist here in this psalm, which he's, is written for our benefit, cries out to God for mercy and deliverance. He even sort of argues with God in prayer. You ever argue with God in prayer? Well, the psalms sometimes do. 
And you know, the psalmist, the psalms are here for our instruction and example in prayer and in worship. He, what, how does the psalmist in our psalm argue with God in prayer? He pleads God's promises back to him. He pleads God's redemption back to him. He pleads God's covenant back to him in this, in this psalm. You know, at the end of the day, the church of God, whether it's the Old Testament church in Israel or the New Testament church as it is now, the church is the people of God, not, not a building. In some ways, the church, the people of God, is the embodiment, ultimately, of God's cause for his glory. That's why the psalmist says, for the sake of your cause, defend your cause, not ours, not mine, your own. That's the way the psalmist argues in prayer here. And so we in the church today... You know, we are obviously not, thankfully, in the same exact circumstance as they were, the same exact uh, situation. But I think if we take the time uh, to look through this together and have the eyes of faith, we will see a lot of application for us in our own day in the church as well. There's much application here. This is not just Psalm 74. is not a psalm to be under glass. It's not just there because it's interesting. It's not just there because, oh, this thing happened in 586 B.C., you know, 2,500 almost years ago. Um, the state, there are lessons here for us in the church today, I think, uh, if we have the eyes of faith to, to see it. Um, is, the, is the church in our day not increasingly under affliction and attack? Is the church's condition in some ways not unlike that of Judah before the Babylonian captivity? And what, what is that? Rife with various forms of idolatry and iniquity. Seems to me everywhere you look, you see those two things, one or the other or both, even in the church. And do we not see signs of God's just judgment and chastisement upon our land? You know, you read Romans 1. This isn't the sermon text, but you read Romans 1, God giving them over, God giving a people over that don't want to keep God in their minds, he gives them over to a depraved mind. What do you see all through our land right now? It's like we're living in bizarro world. It's like opposite day forever. What's right is wrong. The only thing that's outlawed is the truth. We don't know what bathroom we're supposed to use. We don't know what a gender is. We, everything is just so confused because we've turned aside from God as a land and we're worshiping the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. So God, what does he do? You don't want God? He, he gives you what you want. If, we, if, if our nation doesn't want to have God in our hearts and minds, other things will fill that vacuum, and those things will not be good. Those things will lead to tyranny and all kinds of, of evils. You know, so this psalm, I think, teaches us, among other things, it'll teach us how to pray, how to sing and worship the Lord Jesus Christ, even in a time like this. You know, it's not, it's, it should be instructive for us that there's a psalm in a day of calamity like this, even in a time like that, when the smoke might still be rising from the ashes of the, of the temple at that time, the people were still to worship. There was still a psalm for them to sing and to pray in a time such as this. So I want to look at a couple things this morning. The first thing we see in our psalm is kind of, if I can use this word, it's the psalmist complaint. The psalmist complaint unto God. In verse 1 he says, O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Now, we know from Scripture and multiple promises in, in, in God's word that God never leaves or forsakes his people. Hebrews 13.5, elsewhere, he'll never leave us or forsake us. 
But it doesn't mean that sometimes it won't feel like he has. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever cried out to God? If you've been a Christian for a long time, you, you almost certainly have. How long? How long does this have to go on? How long do I have to deal with whatever, you know, fill in the blank, whatever you're going through, either individually, as a family, or even as, a, as, our, as our nation? Um, how long? You know, sometimes we feel like God has forsaken us, even though we know he hasn't. That's certainly the feeling of the psalmist here. Not only does it seem like God had cast aside his people, but the worst part is it, it felt like it was forever. You know, when, when you see the temple burned to the ground, that feels permanent. The, the temple wasn't something that was erected in a day. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day. Well, the temple took a long time to build. It was kind of their, you know, and sometimes the, the people of Judah looked at it like a, like a good luck charm, like a, like, a, like a lucky rabbit's foot. In the book of Jeremiah, he tells the people, don't say to yourself, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple. They thought, as long as we've got this, we've got God in a box. And if we've got God in a box, we're good. We can do whatever we want. We're safe. The enemies won't dare. God won't let the enemy come in here and touch. They might touch my house. They won't touch God's house. God will stop them. But what happened? God let them right in. And they destroyed the temple. It's been destroyed more than once. You know, Herod's temple, the one that was around in Jesus' day. Uh, the Bible tells us it took 46 years to build that. That's a long time. They called it Herod's Temple. They, 46 years. Remember how impressed the disciples were? They, they you know, Lord, you know, look at these great buildings. And what did Jesus say? Not one stone is going to be left on top of another. In other words, the same thing we're reading about here was going to happen later again for the same reasons. Rejecting their Messiah and idolatry and iniquity. That is what was going on. Think about the imagery of God, of God's anger smoking against the sheep of his pasture. That, that's a terrible vision to have in your mind of God, his anger smoking against the sheep of his pasture. Why, why, did, the, why did the writer of the psalm feel that way? That's a pretty picturesque thing to think of. He tells us much of the reason the first 11 verses of the psalm. And most of that has to do with the destruction of the temple. In verse 3, the psalmist, as it were, kind of, you know, the psalmist is writing in poetic language. He's not denying God's omniscience. But in, in, psalm, in verse 3 here, he kind of invites God to come see for himself. Come and just look at what they've done, because it feels like God hasn't noticed. Right? He says in verse 3, direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Come and look, God. Come and look and see what they've done uh, and do something about it. Notice how the psalmist describes the temple. You know, he doesn't say it belongs to us. He doesn't say, God, they've wrecked our temple. Does he? It didn't belong to the people of Judah or Israel. It belonged to God. It was God's house that they had invaded and destroyed. Uh, it was his enemies that did all this. Not their enemies, it was God's enemies and God's house that they had destroyed. Look at verse 4, he says, Your foes have roared in the midst of what? Your meeting place. Not my house, your house. Your house they've destroyed. Your house they've roared like a lion in the midst of it. They had destroyed God's meeting place. They had chopped everything down as if they were cutting down trees for timber. Verses 5 
and 6, that they set God's sanctuary on fire. Verse 7, he says, they profane the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. It's God's house, the dwelling place of God's name, and the wicked had burned it down to the ground. You can imagine what that must have felt like for the psalmist and the faithful remnant there in Judah. Not only that, but verse 8 says, as I mentioned before, they, it says they burned all of the meeting places of God in the land. Like, they basically went in, destroyed everything, and tried as hard as they could to root out and to get rid of the public worship of God in the land of Judah. Of all the destruction they did, that was the worst part. And the psalmist points it out for that reason. Of all the things that could befall the people of God, one of the far worst things that can be done is doing away with the public worship of God's people. David Dixon writes this. He says, External troubles are much lighter when the public ordinances and signs of God's presence in a land may be had for spiritual comfort. But when those are removed, every trouble is more heavy. You can deal with a lot of things, a lot of hard, hard, difficult, painful things when you still have the public worship of God. When you still have the ordinances of God, the word of God, prayer, the Lord's Supper. We might take these things lightly, but we really shouldn't. In fact, if we learned anything in the past year, so many people not having the opportunity to have these things. How much worse did that make the circumstances for people, for many people in the last year? It's bad enough having the pandemic. It's bad enough having a lack of the normal routine. Take away the church? How much worse did that make it? That was certainly felt by multitudes of people. We'll never know how many throughout our land who were kept from gathering together with their brothers and sisters, their family in Christ. How many were kept from the comfort of the public worship of God's people together? You know, I don't think it's too much to say that we've had, we've seen something of a Babylonian impulse operating in the lives of many people in this country who are the enemies of the cross of Christ, especially those who occupy positions of government, positions of high authority in the government in many places, not just here, but all around the world. During the pandemic, I don't know if you noticed, many of you I'm sure did, that many of them seemed to go out of their way Uh, to hinder the public worship of God in the Lord's day. They did it here, they did it in Canada, they did it in many places. You know, think about the things that weren't hindered. Think about the locations and the places of of business that were left open as essential. Liquor stores, pot shops, strip clubs, casinos. They were literally given more latitude and freedom than many churches. In some places, the restrictions placed upon churches were far more injurious and arbitrary than on those places. Those places which largely make commerce of sin and iniquity were shown preference. They were, they were treated as essential places of business, while many churches were harassed and hindered seemingly at every turn. And we prayed for many churches in Canada, that at least that one that we know of, that the government came in and put us a chain-link fence around their entire property to keep them out. As if that was the, the, the worst crime uh, center they could think of was the church. Not only that, but there have been many reports in Canada, I don't know if you've seen this, churches are being burned down in Canada in places right now. 
So some of the parts, the descriptions of this psalm are much more fitting than we would like to think. Finally, in, in verses 10 and 11, the psalmist cries out, he says, How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name? Again, he, he puts it, it's God's name, God's house, God's cause. Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand, take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them? It's almost like he's saying, you know, we, we don't think of it the same exact way, but it's almost as if in our day we'd say God has his hands in his pockets. That's the pic, kind of the picture he's painting. Take your hands out of your pockets, God, and do something. Do something about this. We can't do something about it, but you can. It's your house. It's your name. It's your people whom you've redeemed. It says, take your hand from the fold of your garment and destroy them. You know, it's a lot like Psalm 68 we looked at a number of months ago. Psalm 68 verse 1 says, Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him. It's, it's a prayer for God to rise up and judge the wicked who were terrorizing his people. In fact, in Psalm, this psalm that we're looking at right now in verse 22, it says much the same thing. Verse 22 of Psalm 74 says this, Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. He's asking God to rise up and defend his cause, his house, and his people. Um, how often do we as believers say the same thing? How long, O God? You know, when, when you pray, you know, sometimes these kinds of prayers, Arise, O God, let your enemies be scattered. The things he asked God to do, take your hand from the fold of your garment and destroy them. We, we read those things and we can become quite uncomfortable at times. The imprecatory prayers in the Psalms, I think, sometimes can make us uncomfortable. But I think if we had gone through what they had gone through, we'd be much less uncomfortable with praying them. They're there for a reason. They are scripture. They should not be abused. Notice, he doesn't say destroy my enemies. He doesn't say defend my cause. He prays that God would defend his cause, his name, his people, and his house. It's for God's glory, not our own, not our own convenience, not our own anger uh, that he's asking God. It's, it's a matter of when you pray like this, it's a matter of leaving vengeance to God. And that is what we are to do. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, right? But that's how we are to pray. God, there is going to be vengeance. God will be the one that, that takes it, not us. And so we pray to God and we trust ourselves to our God and Savior that he will just uh, judge justly. So let, let prayer be the weapon of our warfare and our God and Savior be our refuge and our defense in time of trouble. When trouble comes and trouble will come and it has come, pray. We should be praying and we should take the Psalms as our model in many ways for our prayers. Well, there's a, a turning point in this psalm. Remember in Psalm 73, if you were here for that one or if you're familiar with it, he's, he's going on and on about how good the wicked have it in the first half of the psalm. They have no problems. Remember, they're fat and sleek. That sounds like an insult, but he's saying, hey, they've got all the food they could need. They've got, they're living the good life, and here we are, God's people being persecuted and afflicted. What was the turning point in Psalm 73? In Psalm 73, verse 17, he says, that when he went into the sanctuary of God, then he discerned their end. 
He, he couldn't understand God's ways on the earth. He couldn't understand how God would, would allow the wicked to seemingly prosper and the godly, God's people, who feared his name and who trusted in him, to be afflicted. It, it, it all seemed backwards. And, and, you know, if we're honest, we feel the same way too. When you see these things, you go, this, it doesn't feel right in your bones. You're like, this isn't how it's supposed to be. The righteous are supposed to be blessed. Everything we do is supposed to Psalm 1. is supposed to prosper. But here sometimes in this life we see the wicked prosper and the righteous afflicted. But when he went into the sanctuary of God, then he saw how things really were. His whole perspective was shifted 180. And he realized who the prosperous really were and who they weren't. He discerned their end. He discerned, in fact, he describes, read Psalm 73 this afternoon to remind yourself, he reminds them of the swift judgment of God. That they'll be destroyed in a moment. Swept away by terrors. Like that's, That is the end of those who don't repent of their sin and turn to Christ by faith. That He sets them, he says, in slippery places. They look secure. They're not. They're not. And you know who is secure? The afflicted church. The ones who seem like they have nothing going for them have God himself well there there is a there is a turning point in psalm 74 as well and i think it's found in verse 12 look at verse 12 it says you know after all the things he says he says yet god my king is from of old working salvation in the midst of the earth despite all the things he'd seen the temple being destroyed the discouragement of all that he says yet and even so, yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. It didn't seem like salvation was anywhere near, did it? Anything but. But he says God is working salvation in the midst of the earth or in the midst of the land. Like God is still at work. He is still saving sinners. He is still showing his mercy. I kind of like the King James rendering of this verse a little bit better. It's a subtle difference, but I think it, it is a difference that, that matters. In the King James, at verse 12, it says, For God is my king of old. Not just God my king is of old. Uh, God is my king of old. So in the midst of this calamity, this, this, this natural, national rather disaster, the psalmist, what does he remind himself of? He reminds himself that his God was king, and his God was his king of old. He, God, has always been king. He always was and always will be sovereign over all things. God is, it doesn't look like he's in control, but the psalmist says, my God's in charge. He is still in control over all these things, and even despite how bad it looks, he is still working salvation in the midst of the earth. His God was the king of old, has always been in charge, and he's working salvation in the midst of the earth. No matter how things may look at the time, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he is still building his church. It might not look like it to you and me. Sometimes it really doesn't look like it, but he is still building his church. And what does Matthew 16, 18 say? The gates of hell can never prevail against it. No matter how bad things look, you know, and we can, I, I know maybe you're tempted, and I know I am at times, to fall into the Elijah complex. Oh, Lord, it's just me. I'm the only one that's left. And what does God say? No, no. 
You know, I've, I've reserved for myself, God did it, 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Well, it's still the case. There's always, a, as bad as things may get and may look, there's always a remnant. But God is still saving sinners. Jesus is still building his kingdom and drawing sinners to himself for salvation wherever the message of the gospel is preached. You know, the kings and kingdoms of this world rise and fall at Christ's command. All of them, including this one. Our own country rises and falls at Christ's command. It is not Christ's kingdom. It could be part of it if we turn back to God in some ways, if we turn back to serving God. But Christ's kingdom rules over everything. Christ's kingdom cannot be hindered. It cannot be shaken. It cannot be undone. It cannot be destroyed. It cannot really ultimately even be resisted. Hebrews 12, 28 to 29 says this. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And what's the, what's the application of it? Offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. No matter what happens in this life, that's what we are to do. Now, if you think about the book of Hebrews, you think about, uh, you know, we, we we're pretty sure it was written before the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Think about what the faithful people in, around that area thought was going on. Did they see the hand of God's judgment coming? Did they despair of it? Did they see the kingdom being shaken? And so what does the writer say? You are receiving a kingdom in Christ that cannot be shaken. And so worship God. Get on with the business of serving God. Now the psalmist here recounts some of God's great and mighty acts of salvation that God had wrought out upon the earth. In verses 13 to 17, he recounts the mighty, de mighty deeds of God in creation, in providence and salvation. God, in verse 13, says, he says, God divided the sea by his might. That is probably a reference to the parting of the Red Sea in the Exodus, which is the greatest act of salvation in the Old Testament. It's, it's kind of the, the, the big one. The one everybody would think of was the deliverance from Egypt. He talks about creation. He talks about providence. In verse 17, the psalmist points to God's work of creation and providence over all things. He says this in, Psalm, uh, in verse, verse 17. He says, Yours is the day. Yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. The God who set the, star, the sun, the moon, and the stars in place and ordained them. If he's in control of those big things, he can handle the so-called smaller things that we think are so big down here. If God's providence and power and might extends to the sun and the stars and summer and winter and the boundaries of the earth he can handle the enemies of his own and the enemies of his people our God and king established the sun moon and stars he fixed the boundaries of the earth and so nothing nothing is too hard for God lots of things are too hard for you and me right but nothing's too hard for God now why was the psalmist able to tell and call God his God and his king from old in verse 12. 
He tells us earlier in the psalm. Why was he able to call upon the one true and living God as his God and his king from old? Look back at verse 2. In his prayer to God, he says, Remember your congregation, your church, right? Remember your congregation, here it is, which you have purchased of old. Same phrase. You have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion where you have dwelt. God had purchased his church from of old. That's why he is our king and our God from of old. Where has God purchased a people for himself? God has purchased a people for himself in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. There he has purchased and obtained the church, Acts 20.28 says. He, he purchased the church with his own blood. Revelation 13.8 calls Jesus the lamb slain from the foundation of the world to save his people from their sins. So in other words, he's, he's praying and arguing with God on the basis of God's own covenant, on the basis of his own redemption of his people. You, you, we're yours. You bought and paid for us in the redemption. We belong to you, so rescue us. So this morning I ask, are you, are you saved? Are you in Christ by faith? Are you reconciled to God so that you can call upon God in prayer, no matter what happens in your life, that you can call upon him as your, not just God, but your God. Not just the King of Kings, but your King over all the earth. That's, you know, Jesus Christ, Paul says, died to save sinners of whom he was chief. That means he died even to save sinners like you, like me, like anybody who's hearing us even now. He died to save sinners. So if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, turn to him and live. Now the psalmist pleads with God on the basis of the, of the covenant God had made with his people. Look at verse 20. He says, have regard for the covenant. You know, he pleads God's own covenant mercies back to him in prayer as the basis for God's deliverance and judgment upon their enemies. You know, is this not the way to pray in time of trouble? To pray for deliverance on the basis of the glory of God's name, the blood of Christ, his son, by which he has purchased us for himself. That's, that's the way to argue in prayer. That's the way to go to God for help in time of need. And so I'll ask this morning, and I hope you are, are you praying for reformation and revival in our country and elsewhere? Are you praying that God might turn our land back to himself by a mighty outpouring of his Holy Spirit once again, working through the preaching of his word? I hope that you are. I hope that is your prayer. You know, no, no man, no preacher, no church can just make a revival happen. You know, We often see, I get a little bit of a kick out of it, a, a little bit of a laugh out of it, but I really shouldn't. Every once in a while you'll see a sign at a church, Revival, Wednesday through Friday, as if we can put it on the calendar and God's obliged to to do anything but no no preacher no man no church can make a revival a true revival happen only God can do such a thing by his mercy and his power and and God has done it in the past if you know your church history not not just the bible history but history after that we know that God has done that and he can certainly do that again we might not think it's very likely I, I would say no Christian at any time in history that experienced revival thought it looked likely and yet God, at times, is pleased to do just that for the glory of his name. So let us pray that God may see fit 
to pour out his spirit afresh upon his church. Again, that he may turn our whole country back to himself in such a way that we might see his blessing upon our land again. And let us pray all this for the sake of the glory of God's name and for the blood of Christ, his son. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.